Julie. Hey, Lisa. How are you? I'm hanging in there. It's it's been a week. Um, I'm sure you know we 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 both have been going through. Everyone's been going through the same thing, but it's it's been a, a really just emotionally exhausting week. Yeah, it's definitely been um, a tough week. But I'm hopeful that with the developments of the week and all of the involvement by our young people, as we've mentioned before in this podcast, that is definitely a silver lining, is the engagement of our young people in their interest in improving our world, which we can all use that. I keep thinking back to to Dave McGilvery's podcast when he said, we all need hope. And that's what I keep thinking. We all need hope. So we definitely needed that this week. Absolutely. So um, we first want to thank our guest yesterday for our bonus episode, Dr. William Eddy. He was fantastic. And how courageous of him to just get on and share his story and his experiences in such a raw and important way. And he didn't have to do that. Um, Certainly when he offered, we were really um, just so honored that he wanted to come on our podcast and do that and we were so grateful and it was a really powerful episode so for those who haven't listened yet definitely listen to will's story and his experience as and if you're inclined share it with others um, we received a lot of positive feedback already about it from people who thought that his words were really powerful so thanks will for coming yeah. on the podcast yesterday I think those are the conversations. Um, those are the conversations that we have to keep having and trying to understand each other and really listening. And that's what I took away. I know both of us sat on that call and really just listened to what he had to say. And that's where I learned the most. So hope other people will just take a chance to listen. Absolutely. So um, on a more trivial note and lighter note, um, we just wanted to chat today. So I haven't asked you in a while, how's your running going? What's going on with your running? It's good. It's pretty status quo. I'm not doing anything specific or crazy yet in terms of uh, getting, you know, looking towards uh, doing a virtual Boston. That's not something I feel like I'm going to really think about or start ramping up until July, which we're already in June, so that's coming. But right now, it's really just been that normal part of my day that I can think and sort out my my thoughts. Uh, we did a coaching call with our clients. Was it last week? Or and I can't even keep track of the weeks any anymore. We had done a coaching call with our clients, and we went around and we had everybody say uh, why they run. And one of our runners said, I can solve all of my problems on my run. There's, there's no problem that I, I can't solve. And a lot of us talked about how running was our meditation or our, you know, our quiet time, our time for ourselves. And part of it, though, that, that's totally true for me. There are no, I feel like there are no problems I can't solve on my run. If I've got something that's weighing on me or something I have to sort through my head, I know that when I have that run, I can, I can sort through it. And that by the time I come home, I should at least have some progress made on, on solving that. So that's really what it's been for me is just that chance to think through, think through things, process and solve issues, make my to-do list. Uh, so that's, that's what it's been for me and uh, feeling pretty good other than the crazy heat and humidity, which I think is affecting all of us. And I think we've talked about this before too, but really the stress that we've all been under, even if we don't feel like we're under stress. I feel pretty happy. I'm content being home, like spending more time with my kids, feel like we're being productive and having a good, good time. And 
fortunate not to have to worry too much about our well, our health or um, our stability or anything like that. So I feel very fortunate in that way. And, and even then, I'm sure that the stress of just watching the news or seeing what's going on is, is, is getting to us. And today in the New York Times, there was an article that actually backed this up. It's, it's uh, an article by Jen Miller, and it's titled, The Pandemic is Stressing Your Body in New Ways, and talks about how the stress of dealing with the pandemic alone, never mind everything else, uh, is, um, can, can really affect us physiologically. So, uh, and one of those is, it talks about how your blood flow may be changing, so that when we are stressed, it's a, I'm quoting, your body produces and releases epinephrine, also known as adrenaline. Our bodies take that and shunt all the blood in our bodies toward our main vital organs that we need to survive, like the brain and heart. And that reminded me a lot of what happens in a marathon or a longer distance race, a half marathon. When you get toward the end of the race and your body starts to be under more stress, that's what happens. Your body starts to shunt your blood flow to your heart and to your lungs and your vital organs. And that's why a lot of times we can't digest food or process food or fuel really effectively later in a race because our blood flows to our to our vital organs. Um, so when I read that, I thought, well, gosh, that's that would make sense then that that this stress is, is affecting our, our running. And I, we, I know a lot of our runners will say to us that felt really hard today. And some of that's the heat and humidity and our, and our adaptation to the heat. But a lot of it is the stress that we're all feeling subconsciously or consciously. Yeah, I, I agree. And in and, and talking about that article, I think just like in a marathon, while we can't avoid our body from shutting down in a marathon at a certain point where we have to sort of, um, it, it does happen where um, circulation is limited after a while and blood flow. There are certain things that you can do in a marathon to mitigate some of the effects. And as you mentioned in your example, and be able to take in nutrition. So, um, in sort of the parallel, and we've talked about this analogy a lot, how this pandemic and getting through it, it we can kind of treat it like a marathon. So recognizing that you can't plow through those feelings and acknowledging those feelings, taking care of yourself, putting your oxygen mask on first so that you can take care of others. And so by us recognizing we are under stress, even if we don't specifically feel that stress, when we go out for the run, recognizing again, and we've said this a lot, it's okay to just take it easy and go slower on your run because your body's working hard already to um, handle that stress and that impact that may not necessarily manifest in an obvious way. Right. So, yeah. So for me, um, I, I have really enjoyed one silver lining for me is I've really enjoyed not training for anything right now. And while normally this period of time, I'm not training for anything because we recover from Boston. We run a few shorter races during this time and then um, head into summer training, usually around late June. But because there aren't any races, there's no pressure to start a formal training program. Yes, there's the Boston virtual, but I mean, real live races. And I don't feel pressure to, to specifically train for anything as a result. So what that's done for me is it's allowed me to really tune into my body lately. So where normally I really like to run at least four days a week 
And when the weather's nicer, I tend to run closer to five or six days sometimes, mostly five. Um, I'm really trying to just every day say, is this a day that I think it would be best for me to run? And if not, I'll do something else. So for example, yesterday, I had every intention of, of doing a seven, eight mile run, but I just did, I, my legs felt heavy yesterday and I decided instead to walk yesterday. And I did a really long walk with a friend. It was socially distant and really welcomed because I haven't done that a lot lately. And um, that filled me up. That allowed me to get that recovery that I probably really needed. And then today I went out and did the Millennium Trail, which I like to do on Thursdays when I can. And I did the 10 miles this morning and I felt really good. And I very much believe that that was because I listened to my body yesterday. So these are obvious things, but sometimes you just need to kind of put them into practice and, and hear it from others. So for those listening that feel like you need to be wedded to a particular plan, whether it's in your head or on paper, just use this time because there isn't pressure specifically to try it out week to week and listen to your body, especially as the weather continues to get hotter, especially as we acclimate. There is nothing bad about opting to rest or cross train. And I do consider my walk yesterday to be cross training because we walked very far. And um, the other thing I will say that's really been helping me is generally we recommend to our runners to do strength training after a run rather than before a run because you don't want the um, the exhaustion from the strength training to in, then impact your form while running. But I have sort of inadvertently reversed it lately with Kelly Redmond's classes because some of Kelly's classes are a little bit, her live classes are a little bit earlier and I just don't have the time between getting everyone settled for whatever's going on in my house to do a run before her class. And accidentally, I've done some runs after her class. I realized her class, while it's strength training, it's much more mobility than strength. So I have found my runs are better when I do my runs after her class. And right. you're nodding. Are you finding that as well? Yeah, it's just I feel like you're activating the muscles. I feel so much better than like waking up and just going out for a run where my muscles feel stiff and I feel like I'm tight. Um, absolutely. And one thing I like about her classes and that I've talked to some of our runners about with her classes is that they don't leave me so sore that I feel like my running's impacted the next day. I feel like they're challenging because they're really working areas that I have find myself weak in. So uh, I, I definitely feel like they're challenging, but they're not leaving me sore or overly sore. Sometimes I have a little, can feel different muscles that I worked, but they don't leave me overly sore that where I feel like it's compromising my running. So I do feel like the mobility is so, I think I talked to you the first few weeks I was doing her classes and I was saying like, I couldn't even get in that position. Like I couldn't even touch the ground in that one. I couldn't even, how, how did they get up off the ground that quickly? Like I was feeling like I couldn't do that and that's feeling better now. So I definitely think that there's something to be said for doing mobility exercises or some dynamic drills or some type of, you don't want to go and do heavy squats or heavy weightlifting or something like that. That's going to fatigue your glutes and your hips uh, before you go out for a run. But doing something similar to Kelly's classes, I do think is is not a, a bad. You've got uh, you've got to know your body, and you got you can try it. Yeah. And what's different about this example is while we always recommend drills and mobility work before a run, her classes are called you know core and strengths. So in my head, 
I'm like, well, I probably should do that after my run. So that's why I'm saying it's inadvertent was because it is, there is a lot of, there is some squatting and lunges and planks and things like that, which generally I like to do after. And it's been pretty good. So um, anyway, for those who don't have the link already, we'll put it in the show notes, but we're happy to put a link to Kelly's Zoom classes in our show notes. They're really runner specific and, and we've really enjoyed them during this um, time that we've been quarantined. So the next thing we wanted to talk about is that we realized over the past few weeks that when we get new clients or we start a new training cycle with our runners, one of the first things we ask a runner is, what, so what are your goals? What are your goals for this training cycle? And it got us thinking that, you know, as coaches, we always say to people, like, what's your mission statement? What are your goals? Our answer, we want to help runners reach their fullest potential. But right now, because we've never coached in a pandemic, we, we feel like we need to kind of talk it out and, and shift our coaching goals a little bit for our runners. Now, of course, our goals should align with our runners' goals specifically, but generally, it's probably not the best overarching goal to be, we want to help our runners reach their fullest potential because that would imply that we're trying to help people peak and achieve their optimal running, which for some that may be the case, especially those training for like the virtual Boston Marathon where maybe they really want to nail it. But for others, it's different right now. And so Lisa, I wanted to get your thoughts on what, what you think would be a better mission statement for us as coaches and for any other coaches listening. It's just food for thought on sort of pivoting your, your coaching um, service right now to understand that this is a really unique time and we can pivot back after things uh, return to where we were before. Yeah, I think when we've thought in the past of helping our runners reach their full potential, that potential has meant typically reaching a new distance goal or a time goal, something very specific to a race. And that has been usually the end point. When we take on a new client, if they're usually training 99% of the time, they say, I've signed up for XYZ and I need help getting there. So that's always been our focal point. And, and it does throw us now where we have, a, we do have a lot of runners coming just to say, well, I don't have a race, but I need some structure. And I think that we can still keep our mission or a goal of helping our runners reach their full potential, but that potential, the definition of potential has now changed. It is not the potential or their, it's really helping our runners fully reach their goals, but their goals don't ha- are not now races. So to me, it's helping our runners identify right now what is there, what is going to make them feel fulfilled. What is that? Is that, is that uh, a time trial, looking at a time trial from one month to the next. So that's more in line of what we used to look at. Is it, I have a lot more time on my hands now and I want to know how to safely train so that I don't get injured or burn myself out. I want to be able to run in my newly found extra time and I want to be able to lay a good base for when races come back. Is it, I'm feeling a lot of stress and I want to be able to run for a long time so that I can get rid of that. So I can relieve that stress. And I obviously don't want to be injured because then I'm going to be really stressed if I can't run. So it, so it's really, I think helping runners now identify in the absence of having these 
what has always traditionally been a goal, what now is going to make you feel fulfilled? Is it knowing that you're following a structured schedule? Is it seeing progress in terms of mileage that you've reached? Is it seeing progress in terms of being able to get out four times a week and have your time for yourself and process through things? Uh, is it, you know, it, it's, it's really helping our runners think about now that races have been taken away from us, what is it that is going to make you feel fulfilled? Because the last thing we want and is for a runner to get frustrated with the process and, and feel like that it's not fulfilling or it's stressful. This is not supposed to be a stressor on top of everything else that's going on. So that's, that's what I think our, our mission is, is really to help our runners figure out what, what is going to be fulfilling to them and then figure out the plan to, to get them there. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? I think we're thinking the same thing. I think our overarching mission statement during pandemic coaching uh, is ensuring that every runner enjoys the process. Because if you're enjoying the process, then ideally the goals will be reached because you're not upset or stressed. You're enjoying your running. And when you enjoy your running, you work harder. And when you work harder, you achieve things. So that to me, like you said, it's, it's, it's being able to fulfill a goal individually, but it's also being able to ensure that it doesn't cause stress on top of stress. And even when things start to open up and races return and all of those things, it's going to look different. So I, I don't, I, I just, I think that this sort of feeling of uncertainty will be here for a while. So having, recognizing we're in it, adapting to it, which is where I think you and I are at this point, um, and, and trying to make it the best possible situation is also what our goal is, is for our runners as well. I, I really so. love seeing too, a lot of our runners, especially those who always were very focused on races and results and running with groups, which we obviously all miss, but them coming back to us and saying, wow, I'm actually now really enjoying the process. Or, you know what, I'm actually really enjoying running by myself. I'm getting to tune into my body. So this forced change as, as shocking and as abrupt and as stressful as it was for all of us to all of a sudden not be able to run with groups and not have races and have to wear masks when we run and worry about our routes and what time of day we're going and is it going to be crowded and all of this stuff that we've had that kind of shook us, maybe in the end has given us an opportunity to see that we are adaptable and that maybe maybe some of the habits that we form now will carry the look. Maybe I'll actually do strength three times a week. Maybe I'll actually do some mobility work. Maybe I will actually spend more time stretching. Maybe I will carry <laughs> some of these things. For, I know, don't laugh. No, no, really. I feel like maybe I'm laughing myself. <laughs> yeah. But maybe I will incorporate some of these things when we go back to a busier life and a more, you know, come out of this pandemic life. Maybe that the, the being forced to step out of our comfort areas and for ourselves and for our runners too, maybe being forced to step out of your comfort zone a little bit will bring something extra that you can carry forward. Amen. Totally agree. Yes. So speaking of sort of transitioning out of this uh, complete quarantine phase that we've been in, we know that some listener states have opened up or are opening up. Our state um, is opening up, but our county is a little bit behind. And as a result, 
we had a lot of questions. We've been confused on sort of how to navigate all of this. I know navigate is a really overused word right now, but I can't think of a different word to use to describe how do we navigate coming out of quarantine. And so we had the opportunity this week to speak to Dr. Eric Anderer. He is fantastic. We mentioned him briefly last week on the podcast, but for those who missed it, we found him because he was quoted in a lot of articles that we were coincidentally posting on our Facebook page. And we decided to reach out to him, found his Instagram account, and then coincidentally realized we had a friend in common, which is so funny. And he was so generous with his time. He is the chief of neurosurgery at NYU Langone in Brooklyn. And also because uh, a lot of these surgeries were canceled as he described during this time he suddenly found himself on the front lines treating COVID patients. He also is one of the founders of uh, Running Club, the Brooklyn Run Club. Yeah and he's an excellent runner. I think he mentioned very casually that he qualified for Boston on his first marathon. Super modest guy, but really such a renaissance man. He's a musician. He's got a band. He's a runner. He's a yoga. Uh, he loves yoga. Yeah, we told him we wanted to do a separate podcast on time management with him and figure out how he does it all. Seriously, he is a rock star and just uh, just such a delight to speak with. So coming up next is Dr. Eric Anderer. We promise you will really learn a lot from his words of wisdom and advice, and uh, we hope you enjoy this interview as much as we did. So Lisa, I hope that you have a great week. Thanks, you too. Talk to you later. Bye. All right, bye. We are so excited to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Eric Anderer. Dr. Anderer is the Chief of Neurosurgery at NYU Langone in Brooklyn and an Assistant Professor in the Department of Neurosurgery at the NYU School of Medicine. He was born in Japan and grew up in New York City, where his family utilized a Reiki and Shiatsu practitioner in conjunction with the family physician for preventative health care and maintenance. While Dr. Anner performs about 200 spine and brain surgeries a year and is an expert in complex spine surgery, he has an interest in self-care as a means to prevent people from getting this surgery. He is also helping to investigate ways to reduce the use of opiates in post-surgical patients and eliminate opiates and their use in chronic pain. He practices Ashtanga yoga and spends as much time in outdoors with his wife and two children as possible. He's a founding member of the North Brooklyn Runners Club, qualified for Boston at his first marathon, and is a board member on a number of boards, including the Concussion Legacy Foundation, the New York State Neurosurgical Society, the Japanese Medical Society of America, God's Love We Deliver, and the North Brooklyn Parks Alliance. He is so busy. So we have Dr. Anner on the show today because after COVID-19 hit, he pivoted his practice and instead of performing spine and brain surgeries, he was treating COVID-19 patients on the front lines. He's going to talk to us today about navigating after quarantine, what we need to know to protect ourselves and our family and what activities we can now participate in safely and how to do that. So without further ado, we welcome Dr. Anderer to the podcast. Dr. Eric Anderer, welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, we're really excited that you're here today. We found you because we, as we mentioned to you earlier, 
we were sharing with our runners in our community several articles over the last couple of months from Business Insider. And in those articles, you were frequently quoted. So we reached out to you and we are so grateful um, that you took the time today to speak with us because we know you're very busy. So we wanted to start out today just to um, ask you to share with our listeners a little bit about your medical background and your running background since we are a running podcast. Sure. No. Um, so thanks again for having me on. I really appreciate it. And yeah, there's obviously a lot going on in the world right now. So, uh, and I know there's a lot of interest in, in a lot of the topics that we're going to talk about today. Um, so I'm a, I'm a neurosurgeon uh, by training. I, I grew up in, uh, in New York City. Um, I, uh, I ended up, I wanted to do brain surgery because I worked with this really awesome uh, Nobel Prize winner. He won a Nobel Prize for neuroscience he happened to be my neighbor um, and so I worked in his lab um, got really interested in the brain and in medical school it's interesting because you have this like dichotomy between surgical and non-surgical people and it was clear to me that I was a surgical person so that's why it sort of made sense to me that I would end up going into neurosurgery um, although even though my initial interest was brain um, and it still is uh, to, to a large extent I got really interested in spine surgery um, which is you know a lot of people I guess don't know that half of neurosurgery is spine surgery. Um, and so I ended up doing a fellowship in spine um, and do uh, a ton of spine surgery pretty much in my day-to-day -day practice. Um, a lot of what, um, what I think about sort of on a day-to-day -day basis, and this sort of informs the way I practice is, you know, how to um, get people, even though it's what I do for a living, how to get people to avoid seeing people like me, um, you know, because back pain is a prevalent problem. Um, and you know, there's this whole other, and this could be a whole other podcast about why it, you know, how back pain was, you know, one of the, the, the diagnoses that fueled the opioid crisis, for example. Right. Um, and it was mainly a whole bunch of well-meaning physicians and maybe less well-meaning pharmaceutical companies driving the, um, the, the opioid, um, push towards people with these diagnoses that weren't cancer related. So that was something for me that I was, um, you know, I was looking to essentially avoid and trying to see if we can get people out of that cycle. And so a lot of what I end up doing um, on a day-to-day -day basis is trying to get people um, to think about other ways, um, more holistic ways to treat back pain. Um, I am personally very interested in yoga as a modality to treat um, back pain. Um, we can get into it um, later on if you want, but um, part of the reason I love it is not just the focus on core strength, but also um, it sort of gets at psychological aspects um, of pain um, and, and mediating that to a certain extent. Um, and so I'm actually doing a, a clinical trial with a very prominent uh, Ashtanga yogi in uh, New York named Eddie Stern on, um, on ways to treat uh, back pain uh, with, uh, with yoga. So that's kind of where, where I am. So where, what I'm doing um, on a, you know, my, my professional title is um, I'm the, the chief of neurosurgery at NYU Langone Hospital Brooklyn. Um, and, uh, and I sort of oversee all the, the neurosurgery, um, that's done there. And, uh, and yeah, and so, um, it's something that I find very fulfilling. Um, and, uh, and clearly we've, uh, you know, our, our whole hospital system has been sort of, uh, having to, to adapt a little bit, uh, given what's been going on. So it's been a, it's been a crazy time, I think, to be a doctor, but, um, but also I think in, in a lot of ways, a very fulfilling one. And because we're a running podcast, we have to ask to tell us a little bit about your running background. Yeah, there was that. There was that. Right. So I, uh, <laughs> um, so I, I, I played baseball very briefly at, um, when I was at Columbia, um, like very briefly, um, and was a uh, and was a, a runner there, um, basically as part of um, you know 
pitcher's practice. And so for me, long distance running was, uh, was three miles. We had to, pitchers had to run three miles and the, uh, the, all the other players had to run two miles. So I was like, well, that's long distance running. I'd never run longer than a mile in my life. Um, and so after I gave that up and then went back to the normal college um, activities of, you know, sitting around and eating hamburgers and drinking beer on the weekends, um, you know, I, I was very much out of shape when I left college. And so, um, you know, I think it was actually interesting when I moved to I moved to Williamsburg, Brooklyn, um, which has now become this like sort of global brand of, uh, of hipsterdom. Um, but uh, but I, I when I initially moved there in 2009, um, I was looking for some some way to kind of get back in back in shape. And, and at that time, I was just finishing up my residency. And so I literally just saw this note taped to a lamppost um, somewhere randomly in Brooklyn saying, hey, do you like to run? If so, join us for a, a new club we want to start. Uh, something like that. But it was literally a hand-known, handwritten note taped to a lamppost. So I show up. There's, there are three other people there. Um, we run over and back uh, on the Williamsburg Bridge. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, the next week we gain a couple more people, then a couple more people after that. And then it morphed into this club called the North Brooklyn Runners, which um, is now a, I mean, a behemoth. I mean, there are thousands of people as part of that club. Um, it is a, uh, you know, there are people that were former Division One NCAA athletes. I mean, actually one of the first runners that we had was Carl Piranha. Um, he's a, you know, who's a world record holder in the, I think, four by 400, um, who, by the way, is the most unassuming guy in the world. Um, you know, I was running with him and, you know, at some point where I was like kind of, oh yeah, you know, well, this is probably a 6.30 pace or something. He's like, ah, I'm not really sure that is, but okay. You know, <laughs> not no. And of course I'm like talking to this guy, like, you know, being like, oh, well, you know, uh, let, let me, let me show you what a 6.30 pace is or something. And not knowing that, that this guy's a world record holder. <laughs> so he, so yeah. So, but th this is, th this was kind of like the thing. I mean, we were sort of like the, the unassuming upstart running club um, from from Williamsburg uh, initially, and then it just became this. Um, it's it's an it's an amazing club now, and I, I'm not very active anymore, unfortunately. Just you know, time and um, life kind of got in the way, at least with the club. Um, but it's uh, it's 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 gone on to being like one of the one of the powerhouses in the New York Roadrunner circuit. Um, so you know, I I had basically joined because I wanted to get back into shape, but. You know, literally after joining, um, like say, I don't remember what month it was, but a few months later, I decided I was just going to train to do the New York Marathon, um, and so I did that that year. Um, and that was the first marathon I'd ever done. I, I BQ'd from that one, um, and I think that was all part of you know, I, it was basically just having this great group of people to run with, and they they inspired me. So, um, and it was it's interesting, and it was exciting to watch gains happen so quickly when you put your mind to it um, and you know sort of um, outstripping whatever expectations I had for myself going into it because I you know as I was mentioning was never really a distance runner so that was great I, I love it and, and you qualified for Boston did you go on did you uh, run Boston I did I did um, Boston, did was, Boston was Boston was difficult for me um, partly because I have, I have sort of like exercise induced asthma, um, which, you know, it doesn't affect me that badly, but it's usually cold related. It's not so much any exercise. Um, uh, but I also get uh, on occasion, get really bad seasonal allergies. And because Boston's in April, um, the, I, I sort of underestimated how badly I was going to get a reaction. So I had a really bad sort of bronchospasm reaction to the allergies, right, right as the, uh, the race was starting. 
and uh, and I spent the first half marathon, you know, which is obviously the half, the, the fast half, right? Um, you know, just taking in my inhaler just so I could breathe. And by the time I hit the Newton Hills, I was so gassed and I'd used so much energy um, just breathing um, that I, I completely fell apart. So my split was something ridiculous. I mean, I don't, I don't I actually remember my split from Boston, but I think that like my, my, my first half of Boston was probably close to a PR and a half marathon that I've ever, you know, that I've run. Um, which I don't think is actually that unusual for people. Um, but, uh, but I, you know, I think I ran like a 321 total with my, like, probably like 120 and change for, uh, for the first half. So and that, I, was I blew up the that was struggling. So that's, that's pretty, that speaks to your, your fitness. If it was struggling for you, but it was still, still Boston. You still got to experience Boston. It was awesome. I mean, it was just a great experience. And I remember being in the bus and like talking to all these other people and, you know, New York City is a great marathon, and I love it. And I'm a native New Yorker, so um, you know, I'm basically bred to um, to hate all things Boston. Uh, <laughs> but I have to say, the Boston Marathon was amazing. Um, and New York City Marathon sort of has this thing where um, it's very democratic. Like anyone can run it. Like you can run. You know, you can basically do. You know, raise money for charity. You know, there's various ways to get in. So you know, you get a, a very sort of widespread. Um, you know, uh, in abilities essentially. Whereas in Boston, um, there's much less of that. And so I remember being on the bus and just talking to people and, you know, being, and everyone, of course, is very unassuming, but they're like, oh, you know, I'm looking to, what are you looking to do? Well, I'm looking to sort of break 230 or something. <laughs> <laughs> like, and that's what everybody on the bus was. So yeah. they're being like, you know, I've run one marathon. I don't know what I'm doing. I, I, you know, I'm having like, you know, bronchospasm from allergies. Like, I'm, I'm not even going to survive this. All these people are going to try to run 2.30. Like, what is it? <laughs> but uh, it was a great experience. And I, I loved it. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's really interesting, like, for people that haven't run it to be somewhere at an event where the entire city is off. It's like the whole city is essentially just lined up watching you. And it's just, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really great event. That's what always impressed me about Boston. As soon as we, I remember the first time I went, you got off the airplane and the signs in the airport were welcome marathoners. And it was like the whole city was all about the marathon. And even in New York, which I, we, Julie and I both love as well, uh, you know, it's, it's obviously a huge event, but it's not like everybody's all about the marathon. You know, other stuff is going on. Boston, it's like, that is the marathon. It's so cool. Right. It's right, right. No, it's great. Um, and, you know, I, I remember some, I, when I was running by, I guess it's Boston College or something. Someone's like handing me a beer. Like I, I learned quickly not to grab things from people, <laughs> only to go to, to sanctioned stations because the, the, one of the things I grabbed, I was like halfway delirious. I like I was like, oh, it's beer. <laughs> <laughs> you and so like, many others. <laughs> that's definitely Boston College. Yeah. <laughs> so clearly, you are a naturally talented runner, and um, by virtue of the fact that you started a running club, you must by word of mouth and just through your practice, see a lot of runners. So we want to talk to you for a little bit about your methods. Um, you mentioned yoga earlier, so we'd love to hear a little bit more about that. But what you recommend to runners specifically who come to you and say, I've been having back pain and I think you're my last resort because I think I need the surgery. Everyone's telling me I need the surgery. And the surgery is when you perform it's your most common surgery. If you want to explain what it is, my husband had it. So it's kind of this, it, it, if, if you're in your office, I would imagine most people are there because they believe that they are supposed to have the surgery. So talk to us and tell us what you do to prevent that. 
Yeah, so, um, and that's true. A lot of people end up going to surgeons thinking that they're either going to, um, you know, have surgery or have themselves be convinced to have surgery. Um, and part of it is sort of managing expectations. You know, it's interesting because um, people come in with that, with that idea. Some people are disappointed when I tell them I don't think you shouldn't have surgery. Not because, they, you know, they want to get cut open, but because in some ways they put this idea in their head that their salvation is through some form of invasive treatment. And um, a lot of what I try to do when I talk to people about their pain, about their symptoms, and I really try to get very, you know, in detail about what it is they're feeling, is get it out of their head somehow that there's something external to them that's going to fix this. Now, um, in other words, what I'm trying to do is put it back to them and say, look, you can fix this problem yourself you, uh, by you know, strengthening your core, by, you know, by eating right, by, drop, you know, by, by basically tightening up the paraspinal muscles, by, by meditating to kind of help to, you know, and, and rela relaxing in order to kind of break the cycle of pain that oftentimes happens with people, um, where the pain ends up being something that's in excess of whatever the initial problem was that caused the pain, you know? So there's that. And so that, that's a lot of the discussion I have with people is are, are, are related to things like that. Now, all that being said, there are certain people that absolutely need surgery. Um, and, you know, again, this is something else that can fill up an entire podcast, but I can, um, but briefly to talk about who needs surgery, um, by and large, back pain in and of itself unless it's caused by a fracture or if, or if it's caused by like instability in the spine or other kinds of like infections or things like that that are causing it, causing back pain. Generally, back pain in and of itself isn't a reason, is not a reason to do surgery, generally. Um, and it's something that doesn't generally respond very well to surgery uh, unless you have some of those conditions I was talking about. The most common one from a degenerated standpoint, from a degenerative sort of arthritis standpoint is is actually what's called, it's called spondylolisthesis, which is basically when one of the bones is shifted in front of the other. Um, when the joint is worn out or you know, arthritis has caused that joint not to be working well, and instead of being neatly stacked one on top of the other, your vertebra at one level is out of place. That's probably the most common degeneration-related, arthritis-related back pain surgery we do. Now that's, and that, that's a fusion because essentially what you're doing is you're stabilizing that level of screws. Now, even that doesn't necessarily mean you need surgery. I'll tell people oftentimes, you can strengthen your muscles or attempt to strengthen your muscles, your core, your core muscles, your paraspinal muscles, the core muscles of your pelvis to the extent that you don't have pain because there are people that live with this condition that don't have surgery. And if, if we can't do it that way, then I can do it with screws. Um, but I prefer to have you try this first, meaning have you do it yourself first. So that's, that's generally, that's a discussion I generally have around back pain, instability, fusion. There's also, um, a, a, a phenomenon where people will get problems with nerves or the spinal cord, right? And so if you have not just instability, but let's say there's a disc, right? A disc and the disc is basically just the cartilaginous material that's between the vertebra, it's between the bones in your spine. If the disc can, pops out, oozes out, squirts out, herniates out, bulges out, there's a lot of words that people kind of toss around. Some of them are theoretically technical, but the basic idea is when that stuff comes out of place and starts pushing on a nerve, you feel pain in the area where that nerve goes. 
So for example, if you have a herniated lumbar disc on the right side at L5, S1, usually it's gonna affect the S1 nerve, which goes down the back of your leg and you get the typical sciatica, okay? So the treatment for that is also anti-inflammatory medication, physical therapy, core strengthening, maybe an injection, basically anything you can do to sort of reduce inflammation and strengthen your core until the pain gets better. If it does not get better, um, then that would be an indication for surgery. And in that case, the surgery, the goal of surgery is to decompress the nerve. It's basically, so that's, so there is the fusion aspect, which is a separate issue. It's for instability. And then there's the nerve decompression aspect, which is a different kind of surgery. So if you have purely sciatica, no back pain, you just have a nerve pain caused by something pressing on the nerve, then the surgical goal is basically to go in and clean that up. So whether it's, you know, removing arthritis that's caused it, that, that, you know, because the bones can sometimes grow um, and, uh, and start pushing on nerves or a disc can come out and start pushing on nerves. Whatever the reason is, you want to basically remove what's pressing on the nerve. Um, so the typical lumbar microdiscectomy that we do is a, a treatment for nerve pain in the leg. It's not a treatment for back pain. So that's generally, you know, and I speak to patients a lot and I speak to lay people. I mean, other people that I'm not treating a lot about back pain and disc bulging. And all. People have this idea somehow that disc problems in and of themselves, disc bulging, disc herniations cause back pain. We don't even know that that's true. Back pain and disc herniations aren't necessarily connected. Um, and the reason we know that is because there are tons of people that have disc herniations that are completely asymptomatic, which basically means that in and of itself, a disc herniation does not necessarily cause back pain. Um, and this, this is something that for a lot of people, they're like, wait, what do you, wait, but that doesn't make any sense because I've always heard, I've always thought that slipped disc, herniated disc, that must mean you have a back problem. It doesn't. There are people, there are tons of people with those findings in MRI that have zero symptoms, zero. It's not pressing on a nerve. It's not hitting it's not a, nerve. a nerve. It's not. There isn't, I mean, there isn't a well-defined mechanism for why a herniated disc would even cause back pain, back pain, not leg pain. Um, you know, there's, there are some nerves that have been postulated to kind of go up and down the spine that may like, you know, that's, that's sort of um, beyond the scope of this discussion. But also, you know, the point basically is that we just don't know whether or not a herniated disc causes back pain. And so my, my general opinion, when people come in with, you know, MRIs and they're showing me this and they're saying, I, what's, I, I asked them, Hey, you know, how are you doing? Like, nice to meet you. What, what, what is it you're coming to see me for? They're like, well, my L3 and 4 are herniated. I'm like, well, what does that even mean? Like, what are your symptoms? Like, well, I have some back pain here and there. I did this and that. And a lot of times after I talked to them, I realized, well, yes, you have back pain and yes, you have maybe an L3 or 4 bulge or something on that MRI, but I'm not sure they're actually related. So let's forget your MRI for a second. I think you have back pain because you have muscle spasm. Or I think you have back pain because you have, you know, some joint inflammation or, you know, you're a weekend warrior that just decided to start, start running again uh, for the first time in 10 years and you did 10 miles, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, oftentimes, I think it actually has not very little to do with a structural problem that you're going to identify. And again, I'm talking about back pain here. I'm not talking about nerve pain, sciatica, you know, sort of spinal cord compression symptoms. That's different. Um, but this is more like axial, like neck back pain.
And what, what do you tell runners, um, you know, speaking of those weekend warriors, what, what do you tell your friends who are runners or your family who are runners or people who ask you how to, how to avoid getting in that position in the first place? Yeah, so um, I think it's probably very similar to what you're telling people you're coaching. Um, you know, you, if you are somebody whose fitness level um, is not uh, appropriate for starting out with like, you know, some crazy, you know, the Pete Fitzinger method of, you know, run, you know, you know, marathon training, then don't do it. You know, you need to basically start slow. You need a base. So the, the first thing you need to do is just get out there, get some miles in, you know, get up to like 20, so, you know, 20, 25 miles a week um, by doing easy runs and just getting used to pounding the pavement again, getting used to being upright in that position for, for that period of time. I and mean, it's, it's, I, I, when I started running, I was having all kinds of aches and pains um, that I had never really had before. Um, and I was like, well, am I going to be able to continue to do this? And with time, my body adapted. And, and a lot of that actually had little to do with even my fitness level per se. It was just basically, I was used to not running. And then all of a sudden I started running. And so I started getting, you know, anterior thigh pain and all kinds of like weird, you know, aches and pains that were just, my body was just not used to doing. Um, and so I would say that, you know, if you're starting off reasonably slow, getting your body acclimated to being upright and running um, and, uh, and getting to a point where that's becoming comfortable for you, you know, three times a week at least, then you can start something that's a little bit more detailed and intense. But that, that, should, that period should last a good four to six weeks, I would say, at least before you start doing some kind of serious training. So for the Weekend Warrior, I mean, I'd say it's, you spend six weeks ramping up your volume very slowly, running at least three times a week, but not really in excess of that, I would say, initially. Um, you know, and again, these are just, you know, they're, they're, they're not hard and fast, but, you know, it's a general principle until you get to a point where your body, your joints, everything is sort of used to you know, being in that position and, and, uh, and sort of literally pounding the pavement. And then once all those, you know, initiating aches and pains subside, I think that you can start, start moving up, moving up in the, uh, in the intensity. And then conversely, what do you tell the runners who've been running for 20 years who um, want to keep um, doing their sport, but all they're doing is running and then maybe some basic core strength work like most runners, you know, right. what do you tell them who come to see you that suddenly have this back pain? Well, I mean, if I really think that they're somebody that has kept a certain fitness level up and I think that there isn't really room to like, if I don't think it's a core strength issue, um, let's say they are doing planks and yoga and Pilates or whatever religiously. Um, and this is something new. Um, I'll actually investigate that maybe a little bit more upfront. So in other words, nobody that sees me um, right off the bat is getting an MRI um, because generally MRIs show all kinds of crazy stuff that oftentimes are unrelated um, and, uh, and I'm not even, and oftentimes, and will sometimes muddy the picture a little bit because people get fixated on like a little thing they see on an MRI and not really get at the problem. Um, for somebody that I think is really in good shape and is paying a lot of attention to their core, um, I may investigate a little bit sooner. So in other words, instead of spending, you know, a month or two with, you know, your physical therapy, your anti-inflammatories and what have you until you get the MRI, I may do it a little bit sooner. Um, but that being said, there are lots of people who are in amazing shape, who work out religiously, who also neglect certain parts of their body. I mean, it's hard, it's hard to work your core out um, unless you're specifically looking to work it out. 
And I've talked to people that um, I, um, you know, that are that are very very fit that exercise a lot. That still, when you talk to them, you it's obvious that they don't really understand what the core is. You know, they'll say, "Oh, I do, I do sit-ups." No, I stand all day. Like, well, okay. I mean, that's that's not your entire core, right? I mean, your core is both, you know, it's, it's your abdomen, but it's also your posterior paraspinal muscles, it's the pelvic girdle muscles. It's basically the entire portion of your of of your lower body that holds up your spine um, and holds up your holds up your basically the the, the essentially axial load of your body. Um, and it's hard to work that work that out unless you're specifically looking to do it. So what exercises specifically or modalities do you recommend for those who you feel think they work their core, but really don't have the awareness that you feel is necessary to heal whatever ailment they're in your so, office for? So somebody that, that is like, that does as a dabbler or that somebody that knows that has a basic understanding of what, of what the core is. And then they, maybe they plank and do things like that. Um, and planking is a great, uh, you know, exercise for your core. Then I would actually recommend, um, you know, kind of branching out a little bit and, and getting a little bit more, um, you know, I would say, you know, uh, in depth with it. Uh, so I do oftentimes recommend people do things like things like Pilates, um, things like yoga, um, which uh, will often challenge you by putting you into slightly off body positions. Um, but then by doing that, will will essentially make you use muscles that you don't necessarily use. And in a way, in, in any good yoga teacher and any good Pilates teacher should be able to do this safely in, in a way that's safe. Um, because the, the principle for a lot of these, and particularly yoga, and like, you know, my yoga teacher, Eddie Stern, um, is always talking about the point isn't to like flow out of the pose, it's to hold the pose and to breathe. So the breath is, is, is very, very important in yoga I mean, in the whole pranayama technique. And, you know, there's a, a wealth of literature on breathing, um, pranayama specifically, but just breathing properly. Um, you know, the idea that we have to teach people how to breathe sounds ridiculous, but it's, it's sort of true. Um, but that is a huge thing for, um, uh, not just stress reduction and, you know, psychological well-being, but also being able to exercise better. Um, so, so that's, so, so that's part of the reason why I'm, I'm a big proponent of yoga, um, but it is, it's something else, you know, yoga, Pilates, something that will kind of test you and put you into positions that are slightly anatomically strange, but that's that force you to use the core and force you to hold on to a, to, to a position using these muscles that you might not have otherwise used. That's what I'll recommend usually. Yeah, you, you touched on too, this, the stress, um, you know, the stress release uh, and breathing. Do you see a correlation between stress uh, and injury or back pain? Yes. Um, and, and it's sort of a chicken and the egg thing, right? Because sometimes uh, stress can cause you to get injured um, by, I mean, you know, it's a well-known phenomenon that stress upregulates cortisol and you know I'm sure a lot of the, the listeners out there kind of know that I mean being that they're most of them I'm assuming are running geeks right so the uh, the, the cortisol upregulation and all that can basically end up causing a downstream um, sort of cascade of effects where it decreases your ability to heal you're in a constant fight or flight response so it's not not necessarily um, a body state that you want to be in at all times um, so it oftentimes can cause you to get injured um, sort of as a, as a secondary effect. Um, but even getting injured and having stress 
um, oftentimes itself is related and can compound the problem. So in other words, um, specifically with back pain, to use that as an example, there are a lot of studies out there that link back pain and depression. And, it is, and it's, it's another one of these chicken and the egg things. Is the back pain a manifestation of depression or is the depression basically causing the back pain to sort of have this feedback loop effect where it, it perpetuates beyond what, whatever initial injury was that caused the back pain? So, um, so the answer to your question is yes, there's absolutely a, 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 a correlation, I think, between stress and injury. And whatever you can do to reduce stress will help you both with injury prevention, but also with, if you already have an injury, with healing faster. So it's sort of a chicken and the egg remedy too, because for so many runners, um, running relieves stress. But if you have low level back pain as a result of stress, do you recommend doing um, low intensity running with that? Or would you tell a patient to avoid running and switch to yoga during the time of the low level back pain exacerbated by stress? So my treatment philosophy in general is um, the, the, the treatment should never be don't do what you love doing. So my, I, I never have somebody, like if somebody comes into my office and is, and is like, I need to run a marathon a day for a year, like, like that Dean Carnazius or whatever his guy's name. <laughs> you know, I want to do, I wanna do what, what Dean does. Like, okay, um, so maybe you can't do that this year, but let's figure out a way to get you to do it. Um, you know, because it's, I think you lose credibility to a certain extent. If someone walks into your office and is like, well, I need, I have, you know, this problem, I run a lot, well then don't run anymore. Well, I mean, okay, that's not really an option for a lot of people. And I know that people listening to this podcast, that's not an option for them. I mean, you know, so the, the goal should be, how do we get back to doing what we want to do? Now, that does not necessarily mean that you're going to, you're going to be able to keep up whatever type of training you've been doing and then just add something and you're going to get better. Um, so it may mean um, you have to roll back a little bit on what you're doing um, for, for a period of time until you get better and then you can get back into it. But so if somebody is having, let's say, low level back pain that they that's not necessarily distressing them and is not preventing them from performing their normal activities of daily life and they're able to, let's say, complete a run, a basic run, um, low intensity without significant discomfort, without stopping. Then I would say then in that particular case, I would say maybe you can dial it back a, a hair and add something like a Pilates and a yoga and see how it goes. If somebody has horrible back pain, um, and this is something that's out of the blue, uh, and they're not really, they haven't had something like this before, and they maybe have to stop when they're running because of the pain, then I would say that's, that's a situation where you should probably maybe take a couple of days at least and maybe even a couple of weeks off, anti-inflammatory medication, see where you are. If the pain doesn't get better after a few weeks with anti-inflammatory medication and rest, that's a point at which I would see somebody. It doesn't have to be a spine surgeon like me, but if, you know, you're, 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 you're a medical doctor, just to make sure there's nothing else going on. Um, and then you know, if it goes away, as most back pain does, um, then you can start up again, and then you just start slowly. And I would generally say start at 10% of whatever your um, your your normal 100% is, and go up 10% of it from there and see how that goes. And any at any point, if you end up feeling um, like that's not working or you're getting pain, dial it back a little bit. But the point is, you should never really take yourself out of it. Not just because psychologically, you know, this is something that for a lot of people will be devastating to say don't run, 
Um, but also because, you know, we know that the old back pain treatment used to be lay in bed for a week. We know now that that doesn't work. That, that no, no back pain doctor at this point now is going to tell you to do that. Um, because most of the literature supports and most of the data supports people that the people that do the best are the ones that get back to their normal activities the soonest. So however you can do that and whatever modifications you need to get back to what your normal life looks like, that's what you should be doing. So you should not be laying in bed for a week. You should be maybe for the first day or two when it's horrible, um, take anti-inflammatory medications or whatever it is you need to, and then slowly start testing it. Get up, start taking walks, then you know maybe a jog, then maybe a run. But um, do not lay around until you're 100% better what about, what about cycling is cycling you know as a form of cross training is that something that's easier or harder on the back what is that what do you think about cycling oh well, depends um cycling is interesting uh, i was just watching that lance documentary um i was you know I, I i have a peloton um but i don't i'm not an avid cyclist so i can't necessarily speak from personal experience um but i can tell you that um the body position that a lot of cyclists adopt is anatomically incorrect or it's anatomically stressful, let's say. Now, these people are also extremely fit, um, but if you watch you know, these, the Tour de France people, a lot of them are literally in a state of um, permanent kyphosis, right? They're like hunched over their bike like this, um, which is not really an anatomically good position for most of us to adopt for long periods of time. I mean, part of the problem with modern life is you know, the, being on computers, being over a phone, being over whatever, it's this posterior chain, um, which is a term that you may be familiar with, but it's basically the muscles, the support muscles, your core, but that, that's the part of the muscles on, the back, on your back. So the back of your neck, the upper back, the lower back. Those muscles- It's basically the position that everyone and their mother's in when they're looking at their phone standing up. Exactly, so when you're like that, you're essentially completely offloading that chain. And so most of what people, when people have back pain, most of the exercises that I'm you know, advocating people do and most of what physical therapy is working on is working on strengthening those muscles. So putting you back into some form of, not necessarily extension, um, but basically into a more anatomically proper position. So get, getting, the, getting you out of like the, the, the cell phone hunch. So the cyclist thing, you know, I think, I think if you're somebody that's never done it before um, and you get back pain, that's probably the reason why you're getting it. Um, but that being said, I think you can also work on, and I think a lot of instructors are, are very good about talking to you, um, you know, talking you into a position that's, that's anatomically correct. So basically not, don't hunch your shoulders, sort of activate your, your muscle, activate your posterior or spinal musculature, uh, sit up right, shoulders back, shoulders down. Um, and if you're able to do that, I, I think it's actually great. I mean, and, and clearly, and I don't have to tell anyone that's listening here about the the benefits of cross training. I mean, you have, and so the benefits you're going to get from cycling far outweigh whatever negatives you're going to get from the small possibility of getting back. And before we move on to our next topic, I have to ask who's your favorite Peloton instructor because we just had on our podcast a few weeks ago, Matt Wilpers. Oh yeah. No, that's great. Uh, so I do a lot with Kendall tool. Uh, My husband likes Kendall. What's that? My husband likes Kendall. Yeah, she's she's great. She's a uh, high, high energy and uh, mm -hmm. yeah, and um, a lot, a lot of, I, I like the music she puts on too. 
Yeah, she has good music. Yeah. Um, my favorite, uh, besides Matt Wilpers, is uh, Jen Sherman. Oh, yeah. It's just there's so many now. And then you, you kind of get into this pattern where you're always with one person. So it's either, like for me, it's either like uh, Kendall Cool or like Jess King or something. But then, you know, you start seeing other people are like, well, I guess I should take a class with someone else. But I'm just, I'm so invested in this person now. <laughs> totally get it. Totally get it. So um, we want to get to the next topic, which is uh, we want to talk to you about COVID. But before we ask you questions, we, we want to ask what... How, as um, a neurosurgeon, how did you get involved in um, COVID treatment, and what what is it like at your hospital in terms of your involvement? Just to explain to the layperson. Sure. I mean, the it's interesting because everyone's experience across the country. I mean, obviously across the world too, but across the country um, has been so different. So what we were doing at our hospital and our hospitals in New York City in general was probably very different from what had been going on or what had been seen at some of the hospitals across the country, partially because it sort of disproportionately affected us. And so New York City got hit particularly bad. And that's where I am. And I'm, I'm in Brooklyn. Um, and we got, we got slammed. I mean, it was, a, it was a really bad time for a while. Now, what I can say is that um, for all you heard about, um, you know, the discussions about pandemic preparedness and this and that, um, you know, our hospital took it upon themselves to make a plan really early um, because we we were worried that this was something that was going to be big and probably as big or bigger than what had been um, reported in the media um, and by other health organizations, um, and so. You know, we were, you know, scrambling for space. We basically put together, um, you know, hospital units in places that had previously not hosted hospitals, uh, hospital beds before. Um, it was, uh, you know, it was sort of an all hands on deck moment. And, you know, around the time, you know, and we basically went with the, the orders to shut down elective surgery, um, which would, in my, uh, in my particular case, basically shut down my elective practice. So pretty much all back pain surgery stopped. Um, or any kind of, you know, disc surgery and all that. And so, but it didn't mean there was nothing to do because, you know, at, at, at my core, I mean, I'm a, obviously I'm also, I'm a doctor, I'm a surgeon, and I'm a, I've been trained in other life-saving techniques and ACLS and all that. And so, which is the advanced cardiopulmonary life support. Um, so we, we basically were in an all hands on deck situation. Um, so there was a point at which our hospitals were all over capacity. And, um, and instead, because I wasn't treating um, neurosurgery patients so much anymore, except for the most dire emergencies, which still did still come in. Um, I was, uh, you know, helping out in the emergency room. I was helping out with, um, uh, on the floors. I was helping out in the, in the uh, ICUs. I mean, it was a, it was a tough time. Um, and, uh, you know, it was just something that, uh, the, we were asked, a lot of people were asked, Hey, you know, is this something you want to volunteer for? But in some ways we almost didn't even need to send out volunteer um, requests because people, pretty much everybody stepped up. I mean, it was just a, it was a tough time. It kind of reminded me a little bit of, um, of 9-11 in the sense that, um, it sort of had this feeling of like this kind of, um, collective, um, you know, Kind of ambition to sort of help get through a tragedy because um, that's really what this was it was a, you know it was a still is i mean a, a tragedy um of you know sort of great proportions from a healthcare perspective but you know i think a lot of people ended up stepping up and kind of doing what they needed to do to, to get through it so 
Well, before we go on to our questions, we both want to extend our appreciation to you and all of the healthcare heroes because you embody exactly what we need, which is people stepping up during this time. And it's not your expertise, but you have the training and the fact that you, it wasn't even a second, a second thought is a testament to you and so many others and what you've done to help all of us um, navigate through this. So we wanted to talk to you about COVID-19 specifically as we are, as you're, you're sort of talking about it as if we're coming out of it, which we appreciate because we, we don't really have a read as lay people where we are in this as, as much. There's so many statistics out there. So right. where, where are we in this in terms of we're coming out of it? And if we are, what are your thoughts about slowly coming out of this very strict phase of quarantine? Well, you know, it's, it's difficult. Um, and it's difficult for a lot of reasons. I mean, you know, the people that study this, that do this for a living, um, have also have difficulty. I mean, you can't really predict the future, no matter what kind of expert you are in a particular field, and no matter what it is, because there's too many variables. Um, so the best you can do is work with the data that you have and try to do what's best to save as many lives as possible. That's really, I think, the, the charge of whoever is making decisions from either an epidemiologic or a governmental perspective. And that's a really, really tough task for something that is brand new, we don't fully understand, has no treatment, and has unlimited hosts. Um, so it's just a very, very difficult situation. So that's kind of the backdrop against which we're sort of fighting here because you know, I'm not saying we're fighting completely blind. There is some data, but it's, you know, it's, it's tough. And you're working on data that is constantly evolving. So um, I would say, you know, it's, it's pretty obvious that for a lot of the places that got hit the hardest, we're, we're rounding the corner. I mean, our hospitals are, have definitely emptied out by comparison to, you know, what it was a month ago. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't going to be smaller curves yet to be peaking in other parts of this country um, because, you know, maybe it was it took a course that was a little bit more indolent. It hasn't quite taken hold in the community as much as, as it is potentially going to in the future. So there are certain places, I think, that are still going up, and we're seeing that in certain pockets of the country. Um, but I would say that, by and large, we're probably over the hump. Um, and the real question is going to be, A, is there going to be a second wave? Um, and B, how do we return to normal um, or some semblance of normal in the face of all this? And that's a very, that's a very, very difficult question. Um, you know, because on one level, you want to save as many people as possible. It would be great if we could, because clearly, um, you know, certain measures that we undertook helped. Um, the, the, the flip side is we cannot stay locked down for until there's a vaccine. It's just not possible. It's not possible. The, the, the economic toll, the mental health toll, the, I mean, it's just, not, it's just not possible. We can't do it. So we have to figure out some way for there to be a happy medium. And I think that there's certain, um, and again, this is not a discussion of like, on one side, there are the people that want everything shut down, and on the other side are the people that want everything opened up and you know, screw the scientists. And all. Like, there, there's got to be like some kind of discourse where everybody is, is you know, basically taking um, not taking a side, um, because ultimately all we're really trying to do is help each other, right? 
when we ask people to wear masks, we're not doing it because, you know, you know we're trying, people are, you know, the government is trying to infringe on your rights. I mean, we're trying to get you to help other people, you know, think about your citizens and think about your neighbors. That, that's really, and I think when, if people think that way, um, you know, we can get through a lot of this. So how do we open up? I mean, you know, that, that's a difficult one. Um, I do think that there's going to be a certain extent to which social distancing measures, certain social distancing measures are going to be, ingrained and are going to be part of us until we get a, until we get a vaccine um, or we get proper herd immunity but herd immunity is probably going to be through a vaccine um, given the numbers that we're seeing so far so um, so I think that uh, you know for things like runners for example um, it's going to be difficult to say we running to have running clubs say like look, we can basically run in groups again um, races are going to be difficult. Um, I think the most difficult thing, quite frankly, are the things that are in closed indoor spaces. So things like broad, Broadway plays, um, you know, concerts, all these, you know, great things. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, you know, going to music, going to, yeah, I, I, this is personally devastating to me, and not to mention all the people that are, you know, put out of work by this. Um, but I, I, I honestly just don't see a path forward for some of these, like, indoor high um populate highly populated activities it just made very difficult um so um but you know other types of activities where you know you're able to maybe have a little bit more distance between people everyone's wearing masks um you know i think that we can probably start to reopen um things like restaurants and um, out, even outdoor runs and all that as long as there's so i think that so for example um something like the boston marathon which I think was recently announced as going to be a virtual event this year, right? Yep, just yesterday. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so that obviously for this year um, has to be the case because I didn't think that they, by September, which was when it was post, it was postponed to September, right? I didn't think by September we're going to have this worked out. But maybe for next year, um, you know, to have uh, not just corrals, but um, you know, basically places where people have to stand. So, like, this is like have everything marked out maybe reduce the number of entrants, um, have people say, you got to stand this far away from people. And, you know, in the, cause I honestly think the hardest, the, the part where people at the most risk is in the beginning when you're forced next to people, um, for a long period of time waiting for the starting gun. That to me is the, is the closure. Once you're going, and I know that there's these like studies on like airflow and all that. And, you know, which I, I'm, I have my own thoughts on that, but, the, the, the real risk is sustained exposure in a place where you basically are not able to move. Um, and the only saving grace in that particular case would be the fact that it's outdoors. So there is a little more airflow. Um, but I would say the biggest risk is corrals. So um, if there is a way for people to figure out um, distancing measures within a corral, um, I think that races can probably go on, um, but it's going to have to be face coverings, social distance in the corral, probably. Um, and then after that, you know, um, it's probably, uh, you're able to run races, but it's going to, it's going to be hard. Um, I think. Speaking a little bit to, to the group runs, going back to the group runs, first of all, are you, are you currently able to fit in running in, in your schedule now are you running and if you're running are you running with a mask like what does your running look like right now so i run uh for my mental health um and my physical health but um but both are <laughs> equally important right now um 
and I would advocate everyone do that for that for those reasons, um, especially given what's going on. Um, but yes, uh, so I run. Um, I, there are no real group runs for for any of the you know the the clubs in New York that I know of, um, and I essentially am running by myself. So I run by myself. I run into places that have, do have a lot of people because I do you know either loops in Prospect Park or up by you know the um, the trails and uh, 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 along the streets in Williamsburg. Um, there are tons of people, um, and the best you can do basically is just keep as much distance as possible and keep your face covered. Um, you know there are no studies on what face covering is the best, um, let alone like what you know, whether or not such a face covering would protect you from COVID specifically. I mean, there's, there's no data on any of this stuff. Most of it is speculation, right? But the general idea is that um, COVID, um, as far as everybody um, understands so far, is a respiratory droplet transmitted disease that is the most important mode of transmission is person to person via respiratory droplets. People get very worked up about, um, you know, surfaces and whether you touch something and all that. And, you know, it's just not known that that's an important vector of transmission at this point. Um, it's theoretically possible. Um, but if we could just basically attack the respiratory droplet transmission, I think we'd basically, you know, mostly knock this thing out. So with that in mind, um, that's the reason why everyone should be wearing face coverings and just to beat a dead horse. The masks are for other people. So that if you are an asymptomatic carrier, which there are definitely numbers of, we have had them in our, and you know, I've seen them amongst my colleagues. I've seen them, you know, there, there are people that are just have no symptoms that can have it. And if you have it, you can spread it. And the way to spread it through respiratory droplets, you wear a mask um, because you don't know if you're infected and you may spread it to somebody else. And if everybody thought that way, then, um, then the, the transmission would go down significantly. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, so I, I run, I have my face covered, I go about three times a week, um, but I'm generally not doing more than five or six miles. Um, I'm not in any semblance of sort of running shape right now, at least to do something that I hit a PR in any event of any sort. <laughs> so, okay, so two points. First of all, I wholeheartedly agree. We've been preaching this for a while, which is run for your mental as much as your physical health. So thank you for that. Yeah. Second, second question, just to break it down. Um, respiratory droplets, we all have been told this, but there are different levels. So for example, if you're outside and you're running and you're not coming into contact with people because you're running in less populated areas, then theoretically you would not need a mask because you're able to assure yourself and others that you're not running around people. Um, so, and Prospect Park obviously is not... Um, a venue that would allow that, but in other areas of the country, running without a mask would not be a crazy thing. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. As long as you're pretty much assuring yourself that you're able to, you know, you, you, would, you would be able to be more than six feet away from everybody. Um, I, I think that pretty much everybody should have some kind of face covering available. Um, and should you come into contact, let's say like, you know, you're on a country road and like, let's say there's a car accident or something. And all of a sudden now there's like this big, you know, group of people hanging out outside and there's nowhere else to run, you know, pull the, pull the buff over your face and then, then run through them, you know, but, but you should, you should always have something. Um, and it's, you know, 
if anything, it just demonstrates courtesy to other people, whether or not you're actually having a, you know, having running a risk of infecting somebody. Okay, and so for those listening, we did not have any conversation with Dr. Anderer before he made the statement that we've been making for the past couple of months. Wear a buff, even if you think you're not gonna see people, if there's some chance you'll run into people, take the buff, put it over your nose, and then when you stop seeing people on your run, you can take it down again. Right, no, and I, I think that's, and if that's what you've been saying, I think that's, that's exactly spot on. Um, you know, I, and they're just people that aren't doing it. They're people that aren't doing it in, in my city where, you know, we got hit the hardest and or as hard as anywhere else in the country and people are, people's emotions are heightened and everyone is very much, you know, like, and people are still not doing it. And honestly, I have to say, and I'm, and I'm saying this because I am a runner, um, the runners, some of the runners that I've seen are the worst offenders. Um, They're know, giving us a bad reputation. <laughs> We're getting right. people it, on any of the listservs, like the neighborhood listservs or the next door listservs. A lot of people get very angry with runners who are out breathing right. heavily and not. And, and like you said, I think it really does go back to, at the very least, is showing um, courtesy and respect and, um, you know, for, for other people. Exactly. And that's exactly right. I mean, I've seen, I mean, it's ne next door, my next door um, app, app is blowing up. I mean, it's like, yeah. and it's, and it's a lot of that. It's a lot of, you know, I saw this runner running by, he was like hacking up along and didn't, you know, no face covering on. Yeah. And there's no, there's no, at this point, there's no excuse for it. I mean, the messaging is out there. Um, what do you think about, what about gyms going back into gyms? I mean, you talked about being indoors and being in concentrated place and people breathing heavily. That to me, yeah. so, I, no. I, I teach cycling classes and obviously I'm not there now and I'm not going back and I'm, I'm personally very you know concerned about going back into into a gym what do you what do you think about that Gyms are hard um, for the same reason and I know that everyone's gonna be talking about like oh we're gonna disinfect like crazy and all that like honestly that that's not even that important I mean I don't think and again that's my personal opinion um, because a like the second someone else comes in contact with it, whatever you just did, even if you like, you know, fumigated and disinfected every surface possible, it's automatically going to be con contaminated the second somebody else comes in contact with it. So unless you're doing it literally every five seconds, it's useless. Second of all, um, people, uh, we, we still, again, don't really know whether or not touching a surface um, is necessarily that that mode of transmission is an important one. We don't know how many people have gotten it that way. Still, the overwhelming majority of cases are theorized to be respiratory droplet person to person. So, it may not be even worth it to to, to sanitize every single surface every ten minutes or whatever. So, my my more my bigger concern with gyms isn't so much the surfaces and what you're touching. It's proximity and it's the fact that it's an indoor enclosed space with less ventilation and it's the fact that you're going to be with a lot of heavily breathing people who oftentimes are coming in close proximity to each other and so for the respiratory droplet transmission which is the mode of transmission that we know is the most important it's a problem um so there are probably ways to do it um i would say you can probably do it the way supermarkets are doing it by limiting the numbers of people that are in a place at one time you're probably going to have to do some sort of walling off type of procedure. I'm not even talking necessarily about physical barriers, although that is a possibility, I guess. Um, but it's like, you know, you can only have one person per machine. Like nobody should be waiting in line for machines or something, move the machines 10 feet from each other, that kind of thing. Um, you know, I, I'd probably, I'd go back to a gym that was, that had all the machines separate from each other um, and only allowed a certain number of people in. 
Um, you know, I don't think it's necessarily, but you know, for example, I haven't gotten into an elevator since this whole thing started. So there's certain things that I just won't do. And I'm probably not, and I've been, which is good because I've been taking stairs the whole time. I've been getting my stair running going, but, um, but I have not been in an elevator because to me that, that is, that's probably the most dangerous public situation you'll find yourself in because small enclosed space, no control over who gets on, no control of who's in there. I mean, I'm, I, I, that's the one thing I think I would probably avoid for a while. Okay, so I'm basically never going back to my office on the 10th floor again. Um, no, just take <laughs> the stairs. Up and down the stairs. Taking the stairs. Um, yeah. So with respect to, to gyms, just a couple of follow-up questions. What about yeah. the, the gyms that are quite popular, like the CrossFit box, where it's, sort, it's more airy because it's got like the garage door type uh, venue where it's open air. Do you feel like that's safer or is it sort of the same issue where where you're next to someone even if it has better airflow and there's actually open windows and things like that? It's all just on it's all just on the spectrum, right? So mm -hmm. is it it might be safer than your average gym, but it's all you know it's it's all theoretical. We don't really know. Um, I would say that in general, sure. If it's if the gym is, I mean, not, not all CrossFit boxes are are open. Um, like open air, um, but if there, but if that were the case, then yeah, sure, uh, higher air circulation should make it safer um, because whatever air droplets get uh, get emitted get you know drawn out quicker. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I belong to our local CrossFit box, and you know we're it's closed down. I mean, it's you know it's it's going to be hard, um, but I definitely do see a future um, for all those institutions I and mean, I think that they can definitely reopen at some point but it's going to be um it's just going to take a lot of uh a lot of understanding on the part of um both the uh, the coaches but also the 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 gym goers and of course there's always the option of outdoor workouts where people are socially distanced which we're seeing a lot of around here that they're starting up in small groups um talk to us a little bit about that and I don't mean to beat a dead horse but I think it's important to, to break down certain scenarios and, and you're, you're good at simplifying the information. So here's another example is, let's say we have um, a fitness class or even just people hanging out around a fire pit. They are socially distanced over, over six feet, of, feet apart, hypothetically. Um, they're eating and around the fire pit and exercising outside um, the other group. Masks the whole time if they're separate and they're outside. Um, when they're distanced just because they're together or what are your thoughts about that? So outside absolutely for all this stuff um, I would not be hosting indoor party for more than your family at this point um, so outside um, Six feet or more um, Six feet or more. I mean, how are you gonna keep a mask on and eat right? I mean if it's, a, if it's a, So yeah, I mean you're probably gonna be not having masks on that that Scenario is higher risk than the scenario you're talking about outdoor fitness. Um, I would say primarily because, um, again, uh, exposure is about not just um, opportunity, but also time. it's time. So if you're sitting in a chair five feet, 10 inches from somebody for an hour, um, your chances of getting exposed are way higher than somebody that's maybe five feet, 10 inches from somebody transiently for 30 seconds while they're doing a workout. Um, so moving 
is better, I would say, um, you know, rather than being in one spot next to one person for uh, a period of time. So of those two scenarios, um, the safer one from an infection standpoint is probably the, the gym one. Um, but then, you know, I mean, it's, again, this is all speculation, right? Because, okay, so there's that, but then there's also, well, maybe the gym people are breathing harder, so they're, they're, they're basically expelling more respiratory droplets per minute. Like, you know, I don't know. I don't know, you know, it's, which is, it's a hard thing because even the people that really should know, I'm I'm a, I'm a physician and, but I'm not an epidemiologist. The epidemiologists or, you know, infectious disease experts aren't going to be able to give you statistical answers to these questions. You know, it's more a question of just, you know, what we, what we in the medical field say gestalt or like, you know, our, our feeling of what we think is, you know, more, more is safer um, based on what we know. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think, but I, I do think both of those scenarios are viable in the current environment we're living. Um, but, you know, again, it's just more about um, paying attention to all these details and making sure that more than at other times, you're paying attention to being distant from people and respecting space and, um, and trying to whatever extent possible to mitigate your risk. Great advice. Well, we have appreciated so much your time today. And, um, you know, we always tell our runners when possible to go to a physician that's a runner because they get it. Um, and you definitely get it. And um, it's been really helpful for us to talk to you and get your perspective, not only as somebody who's in the field and on the front lines and seeing this, but also who gets runners and who's a runner and understands that we want to keep running and we want to get back to some sense of normalcy. But I think, you know, like you said, we really have to be smart about it and we have to be patient and, and kind of wait this out. And in the meantime, do everything that we can to stay distant, wear our masks, which sounds like you know, makes such a big difference. Um, yeah. so, so we have really appreciated. We are in awe. We said we would love to do a whole other podcast with you on time management because you have so much going on. Um, oh, I appreciate that kids and a family and work and, and you're still getting in your run. So, um, so really thank you so much, uh, for, for all of your, your input and advice today. Very, um, sound, rational, balanced advice is what we always are looking for. Oh, thank you so much. It was really a pleasure being on. Thank you. And we will, when we receive them, we will send you another buff for you to wear in Prospect Park. We'll send you a run farther and faster buff. So. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Just a I'm little thank you. I've been wearing my ski mask, so I need something Ooh. else. <laughs> Definitely. We're happy to help you with that. So thank you so much, Dr. Ander. And we hope you have a great weekend. Thank you. You too. Thanks. Take care. All right. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryan. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others and please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week. <laughs>